Welcome back to the Posh Cotney podcast. You're listening to Liam Norvell and this is Hospitality News brought to you by the Industry Titans. Before we talk about today's show, I'd like to thank Matthew Ford from Hawkmore Restaurants for coming on on Tuesday. Now on to today's show. I'm very excited to tell you that we have Benjamin Kayaha from Livit Design. Livit Design is one of the world's largest restaurant design companies, focusing on improving brands' performance through guest experience design. They are active in over 40 countries, over five continents, developing a new restaurant every eight hours somewhere in the world. That is phenomenal. He also is the founder of Fast Fine Restaurant Group, a disruptive restaurant chain and an innovation lab for extraordinary guest experiences. I can't wait to bring you this one and uh, I know you're all going to enjoy it. So enjoy the show, guys. But before we go to it, we're going to hear from our sponsors, Utilitrack. As one of the UK's leading commercial energy consultants, Utilitrack help businesses spend less on their utilities. There's never been a better time than now to review your costs. So if you'd like free help or advice on saving money on your utilities, email us at inquiries at utilitrack.co.uk or visit our website www.utilitrack.co.uk And welcome back to the Posh Cotney podcast. You're listening to Liam Norvell and this is Hospitality News brought to you by the Industry Titans. And today's Titan is Benjamin Keher from Livit Design. Benjamin, how are you? I'm very good. Thank you. How about you? I'm excellent, thank you. I'm excellent. How's things in Sweden right now? Well, it's very interesting. Uh, I managed to take the last flight of LA to get to Sweden, which is home. And the fact that Sweden is the only country in the Western world, I believe, that has not been on lockdown is fascinating because that gives us a little bit of an insight in how consumers are reacting after COVID and after lockdowns and see how the industry, a little bit of the industry future, right? Of course. And what's your personal opinion on how the government strategy is right now? Obviously, you've been completely different to the, the rest of the world. I think time will tell, time will judge. What has been interesting, I think it's cultural differences. Um, our headquarters, we, you know, we're in 50, 60 countries, but the difference really is culture. So uh, the Swedish population have a lot of respect for the government. Right. So, you know, in, in Spain, where we have our European headquarters, you basically have to put the military on the streets to take people away from bars or pubs. Uh, in Sweden, with a recommendation, is enough. So ultimately, the goals are very similar. The goals of the Swedish government and goals of all other global governments are very similar. You reduce the curve, etc. But I think Sweden has been able to balance the economic impact and the sanitary impact. So even, you know, yes, Sweden built, you know, field hospitals, they built a hospital on the convention center. They were never used. They were completely empty. Mm-hmm. People really follow the, the recommendations. So you walk up the street, people are always two meters apart. There's a lot of respect for that. People work from home. Uh, it's an, a very IT forward society. So a lot of companies were already prepared for, for working from home. And there's also traditionally been a very high respect for when people are sick, people stay home and that's okay. So I think Sweden was just better prepared to be able to perform and control COVID and flatten the curve without imposing stronger restrictions. Yeah, it's been fascinating to watch, really. And what sort of measures are in place for restaurants to open in Sweden right now? First of all, the restaurants never closed. 
They have always been open. Um, very few restrictions. Uh, the only restriction that we have, we, we're operating uh, two restaurants ourselves in Sweden, so I can speak as an operator, not only as a designer. The only restriction that we had is uh, you cannot serve food in buffet style or over the counter. So it has to be table served, but you can order at the counter. So if you're a fast casual, you can line up, you can order at the counter. The only thing is that we have to run the food to your table. That's literally the only restriction. There's a recommendation on distancing between tables, but there's no rules about exactly the, is it four feet, five feet, six feet, whatever that is. But if you go to restaurants in Sweden, there's, there's some very interesting learnings, I think, for the audience and, and for the industry in general, right? Uh, where there's been a lot of communication about what measures every restaurant is taking. Communication even pre-visit in terms of this is what you can expect once you come to the restaurant. Um, this is the body temperature of our team members. Inditex, which is a big retail player, they're actually leaving all the doors open so you don't even have to touch the handle. Brands have really gone through the whole uh, guest experience and taking out contacts. There is a lot of uh, learnings from outdoors patios brands with patios are coming back really really strong we've seen that in a lot of other markets as well so there's the perception about you know virus being more dangerous indoors than outdoors which is real so even two weeks ago here it was actually snowing and patios were full and dining rooms were half empty so uh, consumers gravitate to outdoors we're extending patios everyone we're recommending all our clients to extend their patios before the reopening and then in terms of measures it's really understanding you know restaurants do have very high cleaning standards often higher than the ones we have in our own homes in terms of food safety and cleaning protocols so there is a trust between consumers and guests and the brand the mistrust comes more from other clients and uh, so big losers are for example cash nobody uh, uh, wants to touch cash Sweden, to a great extent, is a cashless country, but we're seeing this in many of our other markets where nobody wants to touch cash. Nobody wants to touch a menu, something that another guest might potentially have touched. So it's more focusing on how to create a contactless uh, experience and having the right cleaning protocols in place, etc. There is now a lot of discussion on air filtration which I think is the next level. Uh, there's no restrictions about it, but traditional HEPA filters, according to research, don't filter the virus. So you have to go to BioGS filters, et cetera. So there's a lot of very interesting thoughts around virucidals and uh, filtration in restaurant spaces. So those are kind of the few restrictions that we have, but mostly it's based on recommendations. Just touching on some of your clients, you must have clients all around the world. You know, communication obviously is key right now, but what are they saying to you? Are they really worried about their businesses? I mean, we don't have the crystal ball, but we do have a lot of tentacles. We open a restaurant every eight hours somewhere in the world. So we have access to all this knowledge. And, you know, I've been literally back to back with global CEOs for the last two or three weeks. Globally, the whole industry is impacted. I am actually forecasting that between 25 to 30 percent of the world's restaurants will not reopen wow that's how hard this is impacting some markets are more impacted some less you know we have small markets like norway where you know sales are only down 25 percent but most of the world's sales are down you know 60 70 percent very few clients that and these are the ones that were top of mind for consumers on delivery and takeout yeah. they are actually increasing their sales year on year. So we have some clients in the U.S. that are 40% up. Even some clients in Europe that are 10 or 15% up versus last year. But those are the brands that were set up specifically for a delivery and takeout. And they've taken a lot of market share during these few weeks, uh, which will go back a little bit to their previous sales. But what we're seeing in general is, think of this, Liam, uh, the market is 
very, very reduced. So when uh, countries open up, there's a lot of restrictions in place. Spain has a 25% occupancy mode, uh, Hong Kong a 40%, in the US is 30%. So even if you're allowed to open up, you can only have you know 25 or 30% of your dining guests. And for a lot of restaurants, that does not make sense. We have a lot of global clients that are not opening. Even if they're allowed to open, it doesn't make sense. They're waiting until you have 50% of your occupancy or 45% of your occupancy, because otherwise the PL doesn't add up, right? Mm. So, you know, the, the impact is severe. And another thing that is heartbreaking is that we're seeing that as markets open, you're not going back to 80% or 90% of your sales. There's the only market we've seen that is in Norway, where they I think they only had like 200 deaths or something. So it's right. a very, very limited impact. In most markets, we're seeing, you know, 30, 35% of sales for two or three months even before you start getting out. So if you monitor what's happening in China, there's a few segments like hot pot that are experiences that you cannot get in your home during confinement that are coming up back really strong, seafood feasts, steakhouses, et cetera. But most of it is you know, really, really down. And this is not only a sanitary crisis, this is a fair crisis. I believe what we are projecting with all our clients is that as you reopen your restaurants, you have a list of 50 things that you're gonna do. Make sure that you put two columns next to that list. The first column is for the next six months. What are the things that will be in place until there is a treatment? We don't know if it's three months or six months, but it's months away. We know the vaccine might be a year away, but a treatment that changes the human perception for this being something that kills you to just being a flu. We're not, we know the flu is here every year and we're not afraid of the flu. We still go out, etc. So there's a very interesting difference between that first column uh, for the next few months and what are the things that are here to stay in terms of digital adoption, cash-free, operational efficiency, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Well, it sounds like you've got your finger on the pulse and uh, I'm sure if I was one of your clients, it'd be great to get advice from you as you've got so many tentacles, as you rightly put it. Now look, let's find out more about the, the man behind Libet. I'm very keen to know how your hospitality journey began. Well, started uh, 22 years ago. I'm an architect by trade uh, and uh, studied both in Sweden and Spain. And very early on, we wanted to create uh, architecture as a service. So we started actually doing retail and hotels, large numbers. So things that where you create a, a phenomenal guest experience and you manualize it to scale globally. So we're a scale company. We've traditionally been very interested in the business behind the business. And I think that's what makes it a little bit unique in the fact that we work a lot with private equity and with major brands in making them more profitable. There's a ton of great designers out there, but there's not a lot of designers that understand the business and profit in this industry. So when we were actually doing hotels globally, we found out that there were restaurants in the hotels. And while there are a lot of very good uh, hotel companies and, and hotel design companies, we could not find a lot of restaurant design companies that understood how a restaurant really works beyond the front of the house, everything from labor, from technology, operations, etc. So that's really where we found our niche. And now we become the world's largest company. As I mentioned, we open roughly a thousand restaurants every year in um, 46 countries last time I counted. And uh, we've done over 13,000 restaurants globally. So that allows us also to, as you say, Liam, have a pulse on the market and understand what consumers want. Uh, but it's always about understanding the business and how to make them more profitable. So you have three restaurants, part of the Fast Fine group? Yeah. Uh, and this was interesting because, you know, after 20 years of, of doing this for, for others, we thought that the industry was not innovative enough 
we wanted to push the boundaries. We wanted to rethink everything. And it's hard. When you work with very large global brands, it, they're titanics, right? It's very hard to move and steer. So we said, you know what? We'll do it ourselves. So three years ago, we said we're going to create our own spin-off restaurant company with innovation labs where we actually are going to create our own restaurants that we can do whatever we want we're going to pack them with sensors and we're going to really do things differently our first restaurant was in stockholm uh, three years ago and we wanted to try this out also in the most challenging conditions so as you know sweden is amongst the highest labor markets in the world and labor has been a, a challenge for the, the industry for years so we opened up sweden and rethought everything operational efficiency technology sensors the restaurant became viral very quickly. It was named the Amazon Go of restaurants. Wow. I've been, mean, you know, all over the world giving keynotes about it. You know, if you YouTube me, there's a lot of information out there where I share because that's the other beauty because we own the restaurant. We can actually share the learnings and yes. best practices. Uh, after two years, we decided to do another lab in uh, the U.S. And we did the same. You know, if you want to open a restaurant in the U.S., where would you not go? And everyone said, don't go to California. That's where labor is most expensive. Uh, cost of doing business is higher. So there we went. We went to California and we went to Los Angeles. And we opened in downtown Los Angeles. So we went into the worst conditions. Uh, very quickly, again, viral restaurant, extreme success. We won the best restaurant design of the year award after only two months of opening. And that is now another brand called V. And end of last year, we actually opened another V in Europe to prove that business model as well. So we're constantly growing our labs. And what we did not expect, we thought we were opening these labs to learn. What did we did not expect that they were going to be so extremely profitable. So we're now rolling them out across wow. Europe as well and finding the right partners. So it's been a very interesting journey in terms of how can we pivot, do things differently, but also prove to the industry that we're operators, we have the same challenges, we speak the same language. I think Liam as a consultant, it's very easy to come and say, hey, you should do this, you should do that. It's much different to say, hey, this is how we do it. This is how we are learning. This is how we have 30% EBITDA. You know, how can, how can some of the learnings we have be applied to your business? I'm very keen to talk a bit more about V. I mean, I, I've done some research before we spoke and the place in California especially looks phenomenal. You, you spend a lot of time on making things Instagrammable. Is that fair to say? Yeah. Uh, and I think, you know, the, the design part is, is actually what you see above the surface. Um, yes, it's a good looking restaurant. Uh, the experience is great. But I think what's really fascinating is how we turn the operating model upside down. So we have no chefs, we have no mixologists, uh, it's all assembly line. The food uh, looks extraordinary. The value perception is really, really high. And that's the key behind the success. What's fascinating is how can you go into market, you know, I think currently in the world, there's not a more competitive market than, than Los Angeles. You know, it used to be New York, but now if you want to be a hotspot, you'll have to open in Los Angeles. And just winning the best restaurant of the year award, you know, that thing means a lot yeah. for somebody that has turned everything upside down. Yes, it's very Instagrammable. Or I think our restaurants is the most restu Instagram restroom in the US right now. When we opened, we were getting one Instagram follower per second. I, I haven't seen anything like it. Neither of them. Uh, but but, but, but that, that's great for launch, right? Ultimately, if you have to sustain, you have to have a good product. You have to have a good experience. And we're delivering on that. So it's fascinating to see that now we're going to you know, scale that across the US as well. I've been trying to eat quite healthily during lockdown in London. But when I saw your pizza boxes, wow. Tell the listeners a little bit more about the design in that and, uh, and how popular they've become. 
Yeah, so we call this the project the pizza box for the boardroom. So if you're a board of executives and want to order pizza, what does the box need to look like? So we designed a matte black box uh, with gold foil interior. We actually engineered it so the pizza does not touch the bottom, is suspended one centimeter from the bottom, dissipates the humidity and keeps the crust crispy. The other thing we do is that uh, the handle that you touch is silk. So the first contact with the brand is silk and it slides out and the friction of the box when you open it is like when you open an Apple product. You know, when you open your, your iPhone, there's a kind of a suction when you open. Yeah. That's the same friction that we have on the box. And what we did is we did focus groups and we took exactly the same product, the same pizza. We put it in our box and just a white box, no brand, whatever. And then we asked consumers how much were they willing to pay for that product? The same product, exactly the same product in our box was 27% higher. So with that, we were able to actually prove that there is a PNL specifically for packaging because a lot of our clients were saying, oh, packaging, if it's two cents too high or three cents too high, then we can't change the packaging. So, you know, we wanted to prove that you could rethink the whole packaging and do things differently. The thing that we did not expect is that out of every single pizza box that we sell, 80% is posted on Instagram. And they're not taking the pizza out of the box and taking a picture of the pizza. They're sliding open the box and taking a picture of the box with the pie inside. And what's on there, it's your brand. So we were also able to prove return on invested capital in terms of brand awareness through just packaging. And I think it's just an example of one of the many, many things that we you know, rethink in the industry and that we're applying to these lab restaurants. Before we ask any more questions, we're going to hear from our sponsors, UtilityTrack. Hello, it's Gerard from UtilityTrack and we're delighted to be sponsoring today's podcast. We have a couple of tips for you. In the current pandemic, your business is going to be using less gas and electricity. So do make sure where it's safe to do so that you provide regular meter readings to your supplier. This will prevent you overpaying and building up an unnecessary credit. And don't just cancel your direct debit. Most utility contracts have a price discount built into them for paying by DED. If you can Cancel that direct debit, you're likely to pay a penalty. We're moving from pizzas to technology. Now, a little birdie tells me that you're working on a, an app for the V restaurants. Yeah, so uh, when we reopen Los Angeles, this is a project that's been a year in the making. So it's not a COVID project, but COVID actually helps. Uh, and when we reopen Los Angeles, it's going to be digital only. So we've developed a system that has an accuracy of one inch, so three centimeters. We know where you're sitting with an accuracy of three centimeters within our restaurants and our outdoors as well. So it works like this, Lee. I mean, you and I are in a meeting. We take our app. We place an order. We don't have to tell the restaurant when we're coming. When we walk through the door of the restaurant, we break the geofence. Automatically, our order is triggered to the kitchen and to the bar. We can sit wherever we want. We don't have to talk to anyone. We just take a seat. Within five minutes, our drinks and our food is on the table. And when we are ready, we just walk out. When we break the geofence on our way out, it's like an Uber experience. How was your, how was your uh, experience? Do you want a tip? Do you want a rate? So it's a truly frictionless experience and completely contactless. And we have this for dining, for uh, to-go, and for uh, takeout. So the whole idea behind how can you really take this to the next level, integrating high-accuracy uh, geopositioning, uh, integration into your point-of-sale system, 
and knowing your client's data into you know, a single experience is very interesting. What is also positive about COVID is I've been on calls with CEOs of the biggest hotel chains in the world now, and a lot of things are going to go to app. We had a huge threshold. You know, consumers don't want to download the app. If you're a Starbucks and, you know, you go there five times a week, it's fine to have the app. But if you're a restaurant that you go once a quarter, you don't want to download that app. It's a threshold. But because everyone is going towards that direction, so, you know, if you want to check in a hotel, they're taking out remote controls. They don't want you to touch the thermostats on the room controls. So everything's going to be based on apps. So there's going to be a significant shift towards us having a bunch of apps on our phones. And that's really great for restaurants because that allows you to, you know, be cashless. You can control the payment. You can understand your guests better. And ultimately, you can give a really frictionless experience. So is it fair to say that restaurants, ones that will survive, are the ones that use more technology after COVID-19? It's a a tough question, Liam, because the ones that will survive, first of all, are the ones that have the best cash flow, right? So technology might be an enable. Mm -hmm. What we are seeing is that of this 25 to 30% of restaurants that will not survive, they're mostly smaller players, smaller independents, and also brands that did have challenging cash flow condition before COVID. We are also going to see that a lot of M&A activity, a lot of mergers and acquisitions or private equity companies are acquiring brands, not only distressed sales, but brands that are, are profitable. The problem with our industry is that we make money and we're in constant growth mode. We make money and with that money, we open a second restroom. And with the money, we open a third never There's never any cash in the drawer. So a lot of very profitable restaurants are now going to be absorbed by bigger groups. The bigger groups are just going to become even bigger. But to your point before, the ones that do survive, I think there's two or three key elements to this. The first is operational efficiency. There's no way that restaurants that operate as restaurants have been traditionally operating for the last 40, 50 years will survive. You know, the whole hierarchy of, you know, chefs and sous chefs and dishwashers and runners and, you know, assistant gentlemen, gentlemen, that whole thing has to change. We need to cross train our team members. We need to be significantly more efficient. You know, we're, my favorite metric of the industry is guests per labor hour. How many guests can you serve per one labor hour of your team? In our Stockholm restaurants, we're constantly over five guests per labor hour. Uh, Yesterday, we were actually opening the restaurant from 11 a.m. to 9 p.m. in the evening, and we only used 13 labor hours, including cleaning. That is the future of the industry, efficiency. Beyond that, technology, absolutely. You know, consumers are shifting towards frictionless experiences, but there's also a huge amount of learnings in what technology can actually do to enhance the guest experience. You might have seen that Spotify, uh, their B2B solution has been our partner in our fast fine restaurants, where we understand the psychology, what music does to consumer behavior within the restaurants. We're testing scent technology, lighting technology. There's so much that technology can do for our restaurants and also allow our team members and our managers to not focus on that. You know, there are things that machines are better at and humans are really good at customer journey, customer experiences, hospitality, and allow our team members to focus on that. So there's going to be, you know, two shifts. I think operational efficiency and technology are going to be key elements for the players that survive this challenge. Can I ask, who are Libet's biggest competitors? Uh, We actually don't have real direct competitors in the market because we're such a strange animal. So design is part of what we do, but we also do operations. We have kitchen consultants, we design equipment, we have operators. So we have competitors in different segments. So we can have competitors in the design segment. And those are the Gensers of the world, the really large 
design firms globally because yeah. all our clients are global and multi-unit operations. We only do multi-unit operations. So you could go to Gensler, they're 5,000 people, but they do stadiums and they do restaurants. Mm -hmm. So they don't have a niche expertise. Or you could go to a food service consultant for them to design your menu and your menu efficiency. Or you can go to an operator consultant or to a private equity firms in terms of understanding business model and scale. We are that one-stop shop. So I haven't been able to see anyone that does what we do on a global scale at this yeah. point. I want to know more, a little bit more about you now. So what makes you tick, Benjamin? What, what's your secret? I have a huge passion for hospitality. I have a passion for this industry. I really like it. Uh, and I think curiosity is uh, being a lifelong learner. I take 300, or I used to take 300 planes a year. Uh, now I'm happily living at home. But the fact that you are constantly in the move, constantly understanding consumer behavior, different markets, um, what different age groups want to do. I think the key to success and to thriving what you do is passion, but also always wanting to learn more. Uh, so that's really what makes me tick. And I think the combination of business, guest experience, and doing something tangible. You know, what we do has a direct impact on people's lives. You know, we, it's, it's really so encouraging and, and fulfilling to create experiences where people have fun and enjoy with their friends, with their kids, whatever that is. We used to do hotels. And, you know, when you do a hotel project, it's two or three years down the road. Mm -hmm. It takes a long time. You know, restaurants, it's very immediate. You do a, a restaurant concert, and just a couple of months later, you see how people enjoy it. That energy really drives me. What's your biggest success in business to date? Oh, my team. That is, uh, that's a very simple uh, question. Uh, the, the fact that, you know, surround yourself by people that, that are better than you. I'm really good at some things, but I'm terrible at others. So we have a phenomenal team, uh, the whole management team. I actually report to CEO. Uh, I'm the founder of the company, but I report to my CEO because she's better than I do, uh, than I am on many things. So surrounding you with talented people is, you know, if you want to become a global company and you're going to grow at scale, there's no way you could be always at the forefront. What would you say your biggest challenges are to strive for that success and anything that holds you back? Culture, I would say. When you're a global company, transmitting culture is very difficult. Uh, when you have a company culture and you open an office in Shanghai and you open an office in Moscow and in Poland and in the UK and you know, all over the world, how do you transfer that culture? Because yes, you can have a, you know, your company values, etc. but really uh, and sharing that culture because culture is very important to us, that's a big challenge. We've seen it with openings of restaurants even in the US when we we created the restaurant in Sweden under a very specific culture. And then we went to California and opened up there and talked about our culture. And everyone said yes, but not until we actually brought them to Sweden and had them working in the restaurants in Sweden, we were able to say, oh, wow, now I know what you mean. So, you know, moving culture over countries and over continents has been a huge challenge and is still. It's some of the things that we spend most of our time doing. Do you have a daily routine that, that you, you always read books about these entrepreneurs and titans in any industry? And they always have these daily routines. They wake up at four, they meditate, they pray. Well, what do you do? I don't wake up at four, I don't meditate, I don't pray. Um, <laughs> but I run. <laughs> so um, every morning I run. Um, and normally I'm in a different city every day. You know, Monday to Friday I travel. And it's a great way to experience different cities. Because otherwise you, you go up to the airport, to the lounge, to the hotel, to the meeting and back again. And you don't see cities. So it's a great way of, you know, I run 30 or 40 minutes every morning, whatever city. One day San Francisco, the next New York, the next Shanghai, etc. And that uh, allows you to get a little bit under the skin. But while I run, 
run, I run always on commercial districts. So I run where there are restaurants. Right. And I try to sneak in and stop by and look at as many restaurants as I really can. Um, because I, I think, you know, my, my profession, I have the, the, the luxury of my profession being my passion. So I can do, you know, I, I don't have that difference between what is work and what is pleasure. But in terms of routine, the morning run in different cities and understanding what's out there, I would say it's, it's my number one recommendation. I bet you can't wait to uh, to do that again, running in your favorite cities. What is your best advice for somebody listening to this show now? They want to be the next Benjamin. What would you advise them to do to make their business successful? Be yourself. How do you create something that's different? How do you innovate? Um, question everything. Be curious. Uh, a lot of our clients, they, they, they say, you know, you're super straightforward. You ask a lot of questions that nobody has ever asked. And there's no wrong questions, right? Yeah. And sometimes in, in making stupid questions, great conversations around things that I don't know what we were doing like this. It's very mm-hmm. interesting. Like, like the example with the pizza box. We all, everyone has thought about pizza boxes. It has to be cheap. It has to, you know, we spend the, the heat. It's very functional. Rethink things. Question everything. That, I would say, is, is my best advice. If you look back at your career, is there something that you regret or would do something differently? I would do a ton of things differently. Uh, and I think that goes for, for everyone. Uh, if we only knew back then what we knew now, we would do a lot of things significantly different. And most probably 10 years from now, if I look back, I would do a lot of the things different that I do today. But it's very important also not to look backwards. I'm a, I'm a very positive guy always see the glass half full and there's always opportunities out of the bad times. I do think that these times that we're living are fascinating. This is really time to learn. This is time to innovate, to pivot, to do things differently. You know, brands and operators that reopen as if nothing happened a few months from now will have lost a huge opportunity to innovate and become better. So always look forward, I would say, rather than look backward. Personally, do you have any goals that you that you haven't yet reached that you're that you really once this is over you you can't wait to get a grip on them and, and strive for those? I'm very curious about our global scale of V and 1889 because it was never the intent. The intent was you know creating these labs that were very interesting and and the fact that we've been able to create such a profitable business model and can now scale it with the right partners across the world is going to be very interesting. You know also see how different demographics and different cultures adapt to these experiences uh, I'm looking forward. So the next couple of years, are, I think, are going to be very fascinating. So let's go to the UK now. You mentioned your lovely runs, which is making me quite jealous, and I might go for a run after this podcast. What was your favorite place to eat in the UK? It could be any city in the UK, when you've been on your morning runs or when you when you entertain clients or you take your wife. or What's your favorite place? There, there's a lot. The UK has a lot. London has a lot. One of my favorite places to hang is, is a home away from home. is a, a private members club in in Soho called Blacks, Blacks, run by a good friend of mine. And that is a place where, you know, you can really feel that it's a home away from home. And those are things that you value when you're when you're out traveling. And there's some interesting concepts that have managed to do things like that, right? The Hoxton was a great example where, you know, you could come at any time of the day and you were always welcome, whether it was a morning coffee or late night drink. I'm very interesting in these places that as we as civilizations, our, our flats become smaller and smaller and we live tighter and tighter, you know, we're looking for these extensions of our the real third place that Starbucks, you know, replicated many years ago. There's some very interesting things happening uh, in the UK around that, you know, how to recreate that third place. 
which is not a restaurant, is not a bar, is not a cafe, is not a is not a co-working space. It's a lot of the things, and it's different things to different people. I do believe that there's a very interesting potential for those concepts going forward. I'm very surprised you said Blacks, but it's one of my favourite places as well. Luke Thomas is a is a good friend of mine. I was actually playing late night poker with him the other day, and uh... <laughs> excellent. <laughs> so the big question that everyone's going to want to know is. Are you going to be bringing V to London anytime soon? Yes, we're coming to the UK very soon. So uh, most probably in 2021, we're going to be up and running. I can't tell you much more about it, but it's going to be around. Stay tuned. Well, I can't wait to see that. And I hope I'm invited to the opening. Absolutely. Benjamin, it's been fascinating speaking to you and you are a true inspiration. And when this is all over, we'll definitely have to catch up and uh, talk about the other amazing projects that you and your uh, incredible company have going on. I, it will be my pleasure. Uh, one thing, Liam, that I think might be interesting is that we've captured all the best practices from around the world, from our clients in terms of reopening strategies. And we created a free post-COVID handbook that I'll be happy to send to you or, you know, you can post a link uh, for the audience to download. Because while not everything is applicable to every market, it's our way of giving back to this industry that has given us so much. And if we can help the industry to come back stronger out of this, it would be uh, our pleasure. Sounds amazing. And And I will certainly share that for the listeners after the show. Benjamin, enjoy the rest of your day and stay well. Thank you very much, Liam. Have a good one. Speak soon. Bye bye. Yes. Once again, big thank you to Benjamin for coming on. Really enjoyed speaking to you and uh, I can't wait to meet up in person once this is all over and I can't wait to see the new venue in the UK in 2021. On to Tuesday's show coming up, we're speaking to Mark Curtin, who's the CEO of the Felix Project. I know lots of people in the UK, especially London, know about the incredible work that they do. So I'm really excited to bring that show to you guys. If you would like to receive the Live It Design playbook for restaurants and businesses to open after the coronavirus, please drop me an email now. That's liam.norval at poshcockney.co.uk or reach me on social media at Liam Norval across LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook and Twitter. Guys, that's enough for this week. I really hope you enjoyed the episode. And before we go, we're going to hear from our sponsors, Utilitrack. As one of the UK's leading commercial energy consultants, Utilitrack help businesses spend less on their utilities. There's never been a better time than now to review your costs. So if you'd like free help or advice on saving money on your utilities, email us at inquiries at utilitrack.co.uk or visit our website www.utilitrack.co.uk.